Cast, Episode 17, Musings and Meandering. Today, your inquisitive interviewers, Jeremy and Dave, ask each other some questions and listen to each other's answers. It's a rapid-fire random question face-off. The gloves are off, no holds barred, no topics are off-limits, nothing is sacred. Plus, Dave's faves and listener mail. All that and more right now. This is the Cast. Dave, the holidays are coming up, and because of that, you know, you're going to be sitting around the table talking about random stuff with your family. I know your family likes to kick around uh, Star Wars and other movie ideas and what's good and what's bad and what we like and don't like. I have the same thing with my family. Grew up in a house that loves the Star Wars, the Lord of the Rings, and different fantasy novels and sci-fi things and just, you know, sports, everything else. We just kick that stuff around, and... You get interrupted and things move around and you don't get to finish your thought. So we thought it'd be fun to do something similar here and do the five-minute topic challenge here uh, that we're going to do for this episode, Dave. And so it's, well, it's a long segment. It's going to be a bunch of topics uh, Mm. of us going back and forth. And again, capped at five minutes per topic. And uh, we've kicked it around a little bit, Dave, before, but I want to start us off with a question and we'll probably set up a time to talk more about this, but what's the best Mel Brooks movie and why? Oh, that's a great question. But before I answer it, I just have to tell you, conversations about Star Wars or anything fantasy or nerd-wise are generally shut down before they begin in my family. The people that I can have these conversations with are my son, Gavin, and my daughter, Riley. Uh, every other adult member of my family is never in any way interested in having these conversations with me. Mind you, my East Coast family, my original family, the Vazanas from Florida, yeah. they love this stuff. My brothers, my both of my yeah, parents, that's what we I was could definitely engage of. in this. Yeah. But sadly for me, the Browns, the L.A. Encino-based Browns, don't usually yeah. enjoy engaging in such <laughs> frivolous conversations and so we don't usually talk i usually learn to keep my mouth closed because i also know as you probably know as anyone listening knows that once i start talking it's very difficult to get me to stop and i kind of feel like a lot of the times that if i bring we bring up these topics or we're talking about them suddenly i'll notice you know someone looking at his watch or uh you know starting to read the vomit bag kind of thing and so we uh yeah i've probably i've learned my lesson anyway yeah I'm I'm sort of middle ground with that, Dave. My family, being my the Udells of Sarasota, is are the ones I was thinking of where we could kick it around. The, my uh, you know my married family, who I adore, my father-in-law and brother-in-law actually really like this stuff, but neither one of them would spend hours kicking it around. They would be bored with that after a while. Whereas, uh, and my mother-in-law does not care about it at all. Rebecca, my wife, I'm lucky, will go see these things with me too. But none of them are particularly interested in doing what you and I have done here regularly. <laughs> What we have done here regularly, you and I, Jeremy, and if nobody really knows really what the genesis of our meandering conversations was, and that really was the friendship that we started. We talked about that a bit in one of our previous shows, the idea that we would just sit around for literally hours with nothing to eat or drink. It's not like we were smoking pot together or drinking no. drinking uh, uh, apple cider together or Guinnesses or whatever we were drinking. <laughs> we weren't drinking. We were just sitting there and we were talking about, I mean, I don't know how to put it, nerd stuff, Star Wars, yeah. fantasy, science right. fiction, mm-hmm. uh, um, made-up adventures and child 
childlike wonderment and pursuits. And we could we could do it forever. And I feel like we have yeah. we've had so many conversations both in person and then after we finished college and we all and we both moved back to our respective towns over the phone yep. here and there. Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. it, that's really what this is this all came from is just this ability that we have not having any care really where other people would find what we were talking about interesting. But I think that every yep. once in a while when you and I talk, one of us does hit on something that is kind of not really profound, but interesting enough to to be repeated. And so I kind of think that that's that, right. And that we'll cover more up. of that, I think, Dave, because yep. we owe the audience at some points, episodes two and episode three, where we talk more about our history together about oh, Star Wars yeah. and everything. And we will go into more of that. But um, yes. I'm going to say you're running your clock out. You, you know, I gave, that was about I've three minutes ago. You got two minutes five. on. Mel- <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Five minutes. Best okay, Mel it's Brooks easy movie. to say that the best Go. Mel Brooks movie is Blazing Saddles. Probably the most trailblazing, <laughs> the most um, edgy for its time. I would probably go with Spaceballs, which is mm. probably considered a lesser film in his canon by a lot of people. But for people like me, and we've and we touched on it before, who grew up with Star Wars and had no Star Wars after 1983, for this right. movie to come out a grand four years after Return of the Jedi. Like, that's how long it took this guy to finally come up with something that could be considered a story that was parodying in any way science fiction in general and Star Wars specifically. Spaceballs is a magnum opus of skewering what we know and love about the Star Wars universe from beginning to end. Every moment of this movie from the opening title crawls, of which there are opening title crawls just like there were in Star Wars, is meant to evoke the memory of what we had loved about Star Wars and to make fun of it at the same time. If you're reading this, you don't need glasses. Then the (laughs) ship that passes by in the front of the screen like the Star Destroyer from A New Hope, but it goes by and I timed it. And I really wish that I had prepared for this question because I timed it last time we watched how long it takes (laughs) from the tip of that ship to to go till you see the we break for nobody bumper sticker at the back of this ship. <laughs> it's something like three and a half minutes. Like it's an insane yeah. amount of screen time for you to watch this <laughs> massive vessel just slowly float by in space. And it's so <laughs> hilarious because you're like, oh, the way that they build the ship is clever. It's it's cute because it almost lends itself. Oh, there's the back thrusters. It's We're about to get to the end, but more ship comes. And then it just keeps going. And they're like, oh, here, we're about to get to the Oh, no, there's more. And the music kind of pretends like it's about to come to a, a, um, a cacophony, not a cacophony, uh, like a, a finale. And it doesn't. It just keeps going. And it's so great. And from that point on, everything that we see, whether it's kind of a outsider not really all that knowledgeable about the star wars universe's take on it or not there still is every detail is utilizing something that we've seen from these movies and making it funny and making it different i mean you have i I could just think of every single thing in this movie and it just makes me smile and i can only i can remember the countless times when i was on Youth group trips when I was in elementary school and high school, and we took trips from Miami to Orlando, let's say, to Disney World. It's about a you know, three-hour drive. Spaceballs inevitably was one of the VHS tapes that was going to get played in that bus. And every, and not everybody, probably me and maybe one other guy, we would just recite every line of this movie going forward. <laughs> it, it irritated the hell out of most of the passengers. But we had a lot of fun with it. We liked to shout out our favorite lines. And that movie really, as a... 
as a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old when that movie came out, that's really what brought me into the Mel brooks verse. where after that, I had to go see others. I'm pretty sure that was the first Mel Brooks movie I'd seen. Two seconds left? Minutes. How was that? Oh, you started the timer when I actually started talking about Spaceballs. You're very generous. Sure. I expected that I was going to be out of time already. I, I, yeah, I was okay, going to give good. you your full five So I still have two more minutes. Baseball. I'm not going to take them all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you made me forget what I was going to say. Thank you for, just, for, for making me lose my train <laughs> of thought. You were on a bus reciting lines. My train of thought is, is derailed, <laughs> as it typically is. It's a very, very scary rail that my train of thought <laughs> r- rides on. It's very slippery, and it's very easy to fall off. And it fell off. Uh-huh. Uh, space I'm sorry, Mel I interrupted Dave. He was going ludicrous speed, was, and we, we threw the emergency break. Been, I need to back it up to ridiculous speed, so let's back it up to ridiculous uh-huh. speed. As my introduction to Mel Brooks, I can't imagine a movie for a kid that would do a better job of introducing you to basically a whole brand of humor than what Spaceballs did. Because after I saw Spaceballs in the theater with my parents, and I think I may have touched on this before. I remember sitting in the theater next to my mom, and then they go, out of order, F word. Even in the future, nothing works. And my mom is sitting next to me and she's like, what is this movie rated? I just love, I just remember it so vividly. It's so great. And it was, it was a PG rated movie. You could not get away in a PG rated movie today with the F word being uttered even once. But there are certainly bad language and adult themes in this, in this kid's movie. Uh, the Virgin Alarm comes to mind that, uh, that really made me feel like I was seeing something that I wasn't yet allowed to see and so that made it even cooler I guess that I was kind of too young for it but I was really appreciating what I was watching from there the world was just opened up you're talking about the producers one of my entire family's favorite movies we've seen it a million times Blazing Saddles obviously Young Frankenstein silent movie high anxiety history of the world part one and then is when it I mean after that we kind of go into down a little bit but you get Robin Hood Men in Tights Dracula Dead and Loving It um and a movie that is kind of unheralded, and I'll leave it with this, that people don't even really consider to be part of his canon because it's so outside of his norm as far as the movies he makes. A movie called Life Stinks, which is a billionaire Trumpian developer uh, makes a bet with somebody that he can't live as a homeless guy for two weeks in downtown Los Angeles. And he becomes a homeless guy, and he befriends <laughs> a lot of other you know, relatively clean and good smelling homeless people and he learns a lot about life and then he gets double crossed and left to be homeless forever and it's not a parody it's kind of an original story and i'm out time's up <laughs> well done dave i thought you you handled your five minutes very well i did give you a little leeway as the as you, you were our first guinea pig and yes you fell off your wheel briefly because i knocked you off of it i didn't warn you i was going to give you a two minute warning and then a one minute warning but you handled it with uh, the grace I would expect from you, which is none, I'm, I'm and, very uh, but got right back on it. I'm you a are, graceful. I'm like a swan. You are your. You are I a would say first again, thank you for permitting me a full five minutes because I was expecting yep. after my little intro about whatever it was that I was talking about there at the beginning about how we first started our <laughs> conversations uh, was going to be yeah. part of my time. And frankly, if I were the one who's keeping time here, that would have been part of my time. So I would have only granted <laughs> myself approximately three minutes to speak. Um, but I know yeah. how much you like to hear me talk, so I'm glad that you allowed me that. I do. Love it. Otherwise, I wouldn't do these podcasts. <laughs> uh, that's true. And, and All well, right, man. And neither would I. Uh, you know what? Yeah, I, I, so had, I had a lot of fun. I think we just touched on this topic. 
I had a lot of fun getting to to speak on it for a couple minutes, but I really want to hear you speak on it as well. So I'm going to ask the same question back to you. I know it's kind of cheating. Favorite Mel Brooks movie, five minutes, and I'll be timing you. So um, when I say go, you can start, but don't start before that because we need to keep this official. And I will cut you off without any ceremony exactly at five minutes. Go. I'm going to count them down. Three for me is Young Frankenstein. It's hysterical, and Gene Wilder's at his best in that. It is wonderful. Two is Spaceballs. I mean, it's connected to Star Wars. It has so many memorable lines, and John Candy as Barf it will live forever as one of the best spoof characters that has ever been created for Chewbacca. And finally... Blazing Saddles. Yeah, I was raised with, I was blessed in that my parents loved Mel Brooks and had that on the Betamax for me, and I could pop that in whenever I want. My parents didn't care about all the irreverence and cussing in it because they it's thought twu. it was a hysterical movie. And it's twoo, it's twoo. We had Lily von Stupp. Lily von Stupp, how that made it through the censors. Stupp, I think Yiddish seemed know, to escape the censors. Google it. <laughs> yes, Yiddish, you know. Yeah, he, he at one point uses the word schwarzes, which is, by the way, a terrible word. Do not use that word for black people. Uh, it is, uh, but it is a Yiddish word that um, has been appropriated in a bad way. So don't use it. But the Indian says that word when, re- when referencing black people. Uh, and at one point says they darker than us. I mean, it is a really, really irreverent movie, but it's hysterical. And it makes fun of all the really horrible human beings who believed in racist things back in those times and that you have the the one of the bad guys you know talking about you know we go take the good time and trouble to wipe out every last indian in the west and for what so they can appoint a sheriff that's blacker than any Indian. Well, I am depressed. And then other one, another <laughs> white guy says to him, well, I, it, it sure do um, bring us down to see it this way. H- how'd you like me to shoot that N-word dead? Would, would that make you feel better? And they use the N-word a lot in this movie. Again, do. I do not think this would pass muster in this. And, you know, and luckily, Gene Wilder happens to be this universe's version of, oh, of Sundance Kid. He's the Waco Kid, and he protects him in that moment. But this thing... Not only was it a hysterical spoof on Western movies, for those who don't know, but little details in it, both to references that people would get who were alive when this movie came out and were able to go to a theater to see it, to what was going on with Western movies and any old Western movie you saw. But even the opening theme could have been to a true movie. He rode a blazing saddle. He wore a shining star. I mean, it's amazing. Out of the sun rode a man with a gun, and Bart was his name. Oh, yes, Bart was his name. I mean, it's delivered in so appropriate of a a voice. And ah, this movie, I can recite every line of it because I watched it so much. But... It broke bounds. There's a scene, and I probably can end with this because it is the scene that most people think about still, even though there's no dialogue in it. The only dialogue in it is flatulence. It is the scene of a bunch of cowboys eating beans, sitting around a campfire, 
and all, and they're burping, and then it just goes from the burping to worse, and they're all kind of lifting off their bums and releasing air into the world, and it just keeps going, and that's all you see. Nobody's talking. They're eating beans and farting is all that's happening in this scene until finally Slim Pickens walks over and says, good Lord, what is that? He starts blowing through the air. And one of them says, can I have some more beans? It's like, this is... No one had done this in movies before, Dave, and how Mel Brooks was able to get away with it and have people just adore that sequence, but it was so true to life. It's like, yeah, this probably is not far off from what it was like in a lot of ways, and who wouldn't love to see some of those idealistic things, like, oh, those wonderful cowboys protecting their lands, taken and brought down to such a, like, a real visceral and funny level to satirize racism, but also to lovingly show how much Westerns mean to people. That's what Mel Brooks was great at. He loved Star Wars. He loved Westerns. This wasn't because he hated them. And it came through in movies like Spaceballs and Blazing Saddles. Wait a second. Are you done? You you have still have 15 seconds I'm left. done. You still have 12 yeah, seconds. I, Oh, no, no, I, I, I'm good. Coming in under the wire, Jeremy. Yeah. Proving his yeah. love to- for Blazing Saddles. Thank yes, you, and Toastmasters. You, st- you, you, you finish under time with Toastmasters. Of course, you get 30 seconds on the, on the upside to wrap it up at no, Toastmasters. No, you always need too, the bell to ring. I've seen enough presidential debates to know that you've got to keep talking. <laughs> that bell rings, you ignore it, and you just keep on talking until they cut your microphone off or they go to commercial. That's what you got to do. It's very true. It's very true. Dave. I'm sure you know okay. the, um, the sordid, not sordid, the, the history of the mm-hmm. filming and the casting of Blazing Saddles. That like for instance, right. for in, for instance, Sheriff Bart was was Cleavon Little, the late great mm-hmm. Cleavon Little, who sadly didn't really get to do that many wonderful performances before his yeah. his young his passing as a young man. Um, yeah, he was, it was originally supposed that. to be Richard Pryor was supposed to play that role, and if you think about the 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 pairing of yeah. Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, theirs was yeah. a long standing film relationship. They were in a dozen oh, movies yeah. together, and they clearly loved each other and they, they loved working with each other one of my favorites uh, uh, uh silver streak which was i love silver which was streak. kind of a, a, a an inflated cameo performance of richard Pryor's, but it stays it really it was. sticks with the whole rest of the movie i'm a thief he's it's great yeah. um the fact that he was supposed to do it but richard Pryor was such a total mess yeah. around this time he has such drug problems I guess they deemed him that he was uninsurable to film this movie on the set, so they wouldn't let him. Be, they wouldn't allow him to star in the movie, so they had to yeah. go with somebody else. So they went with Cleavon Little, uh, Richard Pryor. If you'll watch the opening credits, you'll still see he is a, credited as screenwriter, one of the screenwriters for the movie. Wow! Which is, I, and yeah, I had not noticed great. that, Dave. See that I've seen it a hundred times. I don't know that I ever noticed that. Interesting Mel but, Brooks uh, bit yeah. here, though. If you'll if you'll know it, if you look at the amazing output. Of Mel Brooks, and we'll go to our next questions yeah. in a minute. But I think we, this is worth this, this is worth me mentioning, for sure. Mel yeah. Brooks, when he first came out on the scene as a director, he was like a lot of directors are, where he kind of had an actor who was an actor stand in for him as a director to take his place and be his 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 uh, leading man on screen. Mm-hmm. That man for Mel Brooks was Gene Wilder, unequivocally. Uh, the producers, <laughs> Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles. Yeah. And then Gene Wilder, and I believe he also recruited Richard Pryor to join him, jumped ship from the Mel Brooks Uh train 
from the yeah. train of thought. He decided that he was going to go off and make movies on his own where he could write and direct them. He could be his own little Mel Brooks, and he didn't need Mel wow. Brooks anymore. And because of that, for better or worse, that's why right. in all those movies afterwards, Mel Brooks stars in his own movies. He never had any intention mm. of starring in his own movies. He always wanted Gene Wilder, whom he adored, who he obviously mm -hmm. saw the genius that we all saw and loved in every nuance of a, of a line delivery that Gene Wilder would give in any movie he was in. And it was a real shame, I think, for the for the Brooksiverse that Wilder jumped ship. Because if you look at the at the body of work that Gene Wilder created after yeah. on his own, talking about, I mean, I don't know, his first director his directorial debut, I believe, was Haunted Honeymoon. If you'll remember this movie oh. from from nineteen eighty one or nineteen eighty two. I remember seeing it a million times when I was a little kid, but I don't remember huh. why I watched it a million times. Huh. I don't remember loving it when I watched it those times. I yeah. just remember it was a movie that we had on VHS, and the words huh. Haunted Honeymoon were written on the front tape in pen, and I may have written them there myself. I don't recall for sure. Not a great movie, but it was Gene Wilder trying to do Mel Brooks, and no one yeah. could, and it's just proved. The, it was the exception that proved the rule maybe or something that no one could do Mel Brooks like Mel Brooks did. And there have been imitators right. uh, since him that tried to do what he does and just could not replicate the magic of the wink-wink at the audience, tongue-in-cheek, breaking yeah. the fourth wall, parodying comedy, but with real performers really doing a wonderful job of, do, of, of selling their roles and being funny. I mean, he populated his movies with some of the funniest people in the history of American cinema. And he... Managed to be friends with all of them, I guess. I mean, you look at how he started off his career as with the um, thousand-year-old man with, with um, right, with Reiner, with Carl Reiner. Um, mm -hmm. That he was. They were, these guys were around forever. I mean, this guy was one of the original entertainers. He's, you could almost call it vaudevillian. How far back they they went. <laughs> but he had all these guys with him, and they created a family. They, he built a yeah. family of these people who loved him, who he loved, who he wanted to put in everything. And that's why you see every Mel Brooks movie has. Somebody who has been in another Mel Brooks movie. I, I don't believe there is a single Mel Brooks movie where he doesn't have at least one actor who's been in at least one other Mel Brooks movie. And most likely, yeah. if I did enough research to over, with the with the Venn diagrams, I'd be able to tell you that there's probably no one who has no less than two. I mean, I think Dom DeLuise was in every single one. And then you and I mean, it, it, it goes off. You can't even I can't even uh, get into it without wasting too much time. But anyway, Mel Brooks is great. And I would like for us to spend an entire hour talking about it. But I don't want the next question to be to be Mel Brooks related. My next question mm -hmm. is going to be to you and you are going to have five okay. minutes to answer it. And my question to you is. What is the movie that you've seen that you put off seeing for the longest time because you were afraid of it. And when you saw it, what did you think? I was, because I was afraid of it. Hmm. Let me, let me give a little history here. Jeremy in our, yeah. in our relationship, uh, is been very gore averse in movies. Mm -hmm. He, if there's, if there's a drop of blood, he passes out and I have to hit pause and wait for him to wake up again so we could restart the movie. That's how extreme Jeremy's reaction is to fake corn syrup or whatever they use, caro syrup, in movies. I mean, this guy is t a total wimp when it comes to films. <laughs> and G, if it's PG, he, he, he still, even to this day, he'll go to his parents and ask them if it's okay for him to watch. 
as a 45-year-old man. It's pathetic, guys. But he's recently, and I know this because you told me, he's recently come back mm-hmm. around and he's opened himself up to some of, the, of cinema that escaped him before because he was too little for it. And so I, want, I just want to hear, I want to hear you tell me some, uh, at least one movie that, that fits the bill for you. Okay, well, I, I'm not going to go with one that's recent. First, I'm going to just do a very quick story on one that um, I put off and never intended to see and then was peer pressured into seeing by someone who shall not be named but is also on this podcast. Uh, it's called Predator, that movie, Ooh, because I, that. I had been told that uh, Predator so is, uh, had some gory moments. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so I, I kind of kept my distance from it for a very long time. And I was told, eh, it's not so bad. And plus, plus, don't you worry. We'll watch it together, and I will certainly warn you of any ugly scenes that are coming up. So there I was, watching Predator, enjoying good bits of it. You know, some good dialogue there. You know, who doesn't love a good sexual Tyrannosaurus? Uh, I have not yet figured, you know, tried any chaw to see if it did indeed uh, improve my masculinity. But, um, you know, the... Uh, movie overall was pretty enjoyable, and we're walking through the jungle, right? And everything seems all right. We're cutting some, we're, we're cutting some things down. We're looking at machete, you know, got our machete going. And what all of a sudden appears out of nowhere from behind some leaves is a hanging skinned corpse, up close and personal. And then Dave just cracks up next to me as I go, oh, like I'm like completely revolted. Like I closed my eyes. I'm pretty sure I looked away for the next minute and a half with, and no matter what they told me, if it was over or not, I wasn't willing to believe them. So I I have good reason to not want to watch it. I I have watched Scarface at one point with, uh, with someone who told me they would warn me and, then we got to the bathtub scene in Scarface where they're chainsawing people. Luckily, I heard the chainsaw turned away because I was not warned. But I'm going to answer this finally, Dave, with the one movie that I also to- was told had some pretty, you know, rough sequences, but that I really I wanted to see. I wanted to see it because I had seen its sequel. I had seen Terminator 2 mm. well before I ever saw Terminator 1 because I knew Terminator 1 was rough and scary and gory, you know. He's tearing out his eyeball and things into the sink. It's, uh, you know, there's some rough sequences in the first Terminator movie. So I waited a long time. Uh, you didn't see it when it came out. Certainly, even after Terminator 2, I think I probably waited maybe 10 years before I finally sat myself down to watch the first Terminator. Might have been in college with you, Dave, so maybe not 10 years, I don't know. But when I finally did sit down voluntarily on that one to watch Terminator, figuring, okay, even if it is a little rougher than Terminator 2, I still think I can make it through this thing. What I found was it was a pretty good movie. I don't know that seeing it, if I had seen that movie first, I would have thought it needed a sequel per se, but um, the sequel was so good and turned out to be maybe the best non-Star Wars sequel of all time, and maybe that's a good conversation for another time, best non-Star Wars sequels. But, um, you know, the original Terminator, you know, for its time, the effects were fantastic. The Arnold Schwarzenegger was so scary. So scary as the original Terminator, just a force. And uh, Michael Bean, who uh, you know played the hero in that, was just you know this scrappy, like a, you know raccoon going up against a tiger. It felt like uh, at all times, and uh, and 
you know, it, you didn't see how he could possibly end up winning. And it, in that way, it did make sense that his journey ended in his, in his death to protect, to protect her. Um, and, uh, and so in, I really, I was glad to have seen it because it gave more context to Terminator 2, which you don't need to have seen the first Terminator to enjoy, in my opinion. But it definitely helped my enjoyment of that movie, and I was glad I did finally sit down. I got a lot out of it. Very well done. Uh, you have a minute left, so I'm gonna, you're going to owe okay. me another minute. Um, I'll just say the other Terminator sequels so far have all been garbage. No, not garbage. They have their moments. Um, they're, you know, some of them are okay. Some of them are pretty pretty bad. I, it's, it's really disappointing that we have one amazing, fantastic sequel that is truly one of the better movies ever made, and since then, they have not been able to really figure out a way to make a truly good Terminator movie. I hope they do someday. Well, I think my... What I, why I think that is is simply because of who's behind the camera, who did the writing, yeah. and who did the directing, and whose genius brain and vision and visualization abilities was not able to be utilized in, in the f further sequels. James Cameron. I mean, if you look yeah. at Terminator versus Terminator 2, you almost look at Terminator 2 as a template for what requels are mm -hmm. now because it was essentially taking all the elements that worked in Terminator and rejiggering them with a much bigger budget, with a much stronger grasp of the filmmaking techniques in which they, he employed, special effects and actors all across the board, um, to make a much bigger, bolder, better movie on the same skeleton of a framework as the original had. Um, all of that, all of that, born from probably solely the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger played the Terminator in the original yeah. movie. I feel like if it would have been anybody else who played mm -hmm. him, it would not have had as as much of an impact, and it would not be lasting, right. and it would not still be a movie that we talk about today. Uh, the original Terminator I love. The, the Terminator yeah. 2, it's kind of like going from Alien to Aliens in that Terminator could consider it to be a horror movie. I don't think anybody would consider yeah. Terminator 2 to be a horror movie. It's more of a science fiction action movie, mm -hmm. justifiably Agreed. so. Agreed. Um, yeah. The special effects, you know, the techniques they used where he first touched on with the abyss, with that uh, with the water movement, with the, motion, with the liquid metal, was yep. unheard of and just mind-blowing. To the point that yeah. we built that, and again, that's ILM, and I think we talked about Industrial Light and Magic before, specifically with what they did with Star Wars. Mm -mm. But what they did with James Cameron, yeah, no, yeah. from from the Abyss to the Terminator movies, the Terminator Two specifically, is what led them directly to basically the destruction of the entire filmmaking industry, which is literally anything you can imagine we could make appear on the screen for you. Filmmakers used to be limited by their imagination and by the practicality of what they could have appear on screen and in some way right. be convincing if they cared at all about being convincing. But with Industrial Light and Magic, with Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, it was all over. Now you make a movie, you can make any single thing you could ever imagine in any plane of existence, any dimension, any visual, any creature, any vehicle, you can make it exist in, in, a, in a tangible, real way. And that's great for the imaginators Mm -hmm. And I think it's also probably done a lot of damage to the, I don't know, the, the idea of art being sort of a limited form that you work within the rules of that form in order to create. And if you are given literal blank slate, literal 
infinite power to create. Uh, is the art the same? I don't know. I mean, you're talking about painting yeah. on a canvas versus painting on in the on the world that's in front of you. I guess is maybe the a parallel I could draw. But anyway, uh, you're a great call. I will give you. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. I want. I want. I wanted to just say, Dave, because you just talked a good bit about James Cameron, who is an absolute genius, and we uh, uh, dovetailing perfectly with movies I have put off for different reasons. I have still never seen. And I'm sure you and anyone else listening will be amazed. Titanic. I have still oh. never sat down and watched Titanic in my entire life. And I remember in college you were telling me I needed to watch that movie. And so this, I just. Well, I know, wasn't one of those people who reason. saw it 15 times in theaters when it came out. I do, no, I no. do remember seeing it in theaters. I remember finding it to be mm -hmm. very entertaining. It's kind of movie where it's a three-hour yeah. movie that you don't realize you spent three hours watching it. It's not my favorite right. James Cameron movie by a long stretch. In fact, it's probably my least favorite of his movies. And that includes the two Avatar movies. Um, mm -hmm. But it's certainly worth watching. I mean, again, again, look at what they did in that movie. They created an yeah. actual Titanic in front of your eyes on screen. It's amazing. And that thing was completely created by CGI, at least the breaking yeah. apart ship scenes and the, and the, and the distance shots. It's completely CGI. It was completely industrial light and magic that, that did all that. And, and so I, need, it made it I believable. do need to see it. I do need to see it, Dave. You do need but to see I'm it. Gonna, for our last topic, I'm going to challenge you, and this is going to be hard, I think, for you. You get five minutes, and you can go wherever you want with it about where we are with Avatar. Mm. I, um, I love where we are with Avatar. I have a longstanding rivalry with a great friend of mine who used to be my movie buddy. We used to go to the movies every single Tuesday together for a couple years. And so I saw every movie that came out in theaters probably between 2021, probably 2020 and uh, nine months ago, maybe. And a, a point, a sticking point for each of us was always Avatar. He always loved to hold it over my head that I loved Avatar, even though he hated Avatar. And I only defended my position in saying that I didn't love Avatar. It wasn't like a movie where I wanted to immediately come home and put posters on my wall and dress up <laughs> as a Navi. Although I do believe there was a psychological disorder that came about after Avatar came out where people were depressed when they took off those 3D glasses huh. and left the theater and realized that they were huh. still on Earth and it wasn't yeah. this spectacular, majestic, multicolored uh, Pandora with floating uh, stones and, and, and incredible creatures and flying and awesome stuff. The world building of a filmmaker is what makes or breaks. I, I, I consider two points for a filmmaker to be a filmmaker that is someone who's consistent, who has a long career, and that's tone setting and world building. And if you set yeah. a tone and stay consistent with it, purposefully, you're successful. If you diverge from that tone for a reason, then there's, there's, there's something to be said for that that's positive. But the world building is kind of a rarity in movie making because rarely is a world shown to you that needs to be kind of explained or built out other than most of the movies that we see, which take place in the real world, or at least a world that right. very closely resembles our own. So Pandora was completely invented out of the mind of James Cameron. He took elements from other media. He took elements from other stories that he'd heard. But he created this all completely on his own. He wanted to create a Star Wars universe 
the way that George Lucas had created Star Wars. He wanted to be in control of something that he invented, and he could see it through an, a lifetime. I mean, he long said ago, I mean, we just had the second Avatar sequel, what was it, 15 years after the first one? He has been in the Avatar business since Avatar came out, and he said so himself. He intends to do five, I think five or six movies. Maybe he just maybe made it back to four. I don't remember what his, what his plan is. But the world is so big, and there's so much possibility there just simply because of the groundwork that he laid of this world that's separate from ours, that there's a connection with Earth, so there's um, there's Earthlings that, that populate it, that visit it, but it has its own native species, it has its own resources, it has its own fauna and flora, and it's a beautiful place to visit. Now, you can knock it all you want in saying that it's derivative of... Fern Gully, which is to me the weakest argument to say that it's an environmentalist story. So if it's an environmentalist story that takes place in the forest, it's automatically ripping off Fern Gully. Like, who the hell cares about Fern Gully? Let's not be – just to be to be fair. I mean, Cheech Marin as a bat, I believe, was a great casting. But other than that, I don't remember anything about Fern Gully. And I urge all of you listening to not remember anything about Fern Gully either. There are certainly better Don Bluth movies out there, and I'm a big Don Bluth fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Secret of Nim, Land Before Time come to mind. Even uh, I just showed Oliver and Company to my kids last week, which is when Uh Don Bluth was still with Disney. Not a great movie, but you can definitely see his his signature on it. And I meandered again. Avatar is the world that he created. He he is a bleeding-hearted liberal, so he does throw a lot of social action and social awareness kind of messaging into these things, especially now. I would be you would be hard pressed to find a whole lot of social messaging in the Terminator series one and two, other than saying, dudes, AI is bad. Let's just look at the future and we'll see that they literally, if we give them autonomy to make decisions on their own, their first decision is is to be, to make is destroy all of humanity because they're bad and we don't want them around. And so as a person who lives as a human I obviously have to disagree with that concept because I don't want to not be around anymore. And anybody huh. who's a human who doesn't want humans to be around anymore is a genocidal maniac. So maybe James Cameron <laughs> is a genocidal maniac. I don't know. But Avatar doesn't necessarily take that tact. It does so very much in the first movie. Avatar very much mm-hmm. is environmental. Um, militarism is bad. Capitalism is bad. Uh, get back to nature. Uh, you know, the, the people we all want to be the blue people because they're more able than us. They're more beautiful than we are. They're more elegant. They ride around in awesome dragon-like creatures. The second one takes a big step off from that, and I think it doesn't really have the same messaging, although there obviously still is a bad guy because you need bad guys. I've got five seconds, but I can't wait to see where it goes next. And lastly, Ubisoft is releasing in 17 days a video game based on the world of Pandora, which, if any ah. of you play video games, have ever heard of any of the Far Cry games, the company that's making the Far Cry games, which are these sprawling, gorgeous, open world, in the greatest sense of an open world, first-person adventures with ah. all these different kinds of weapons and humor and action and set pieces and stunts, <clears throat> this is now going to be an Avatar game wow. with that framework. I am such a huge fan of the Far Cry series, and as much of a fan of Avatar as I am, again, not a a bleeding hearted go over the top fan. And I know that my bell rang and I'm still talking because I haven't made my finished making my point yet. So you can't go to commercial. (laughs) I think this is a very exciting time to be an avatar fan, to be a video game fan, especially. And I could spend three hours with you talking about all the video games that I've been playing. Maybe we'll get to a a Dave's faves or that seems like a video game episode we need to do. Avatar frontiers of Pandora. I think it's coming out on December 6th. And my only 
sadness about it is is that we're leaving on a family trip for two weeks uh, out of the country, uh, so I'm not going to get to play so it. So you'll for be very behind long. everyone else playing it for the first. Two I weeks, won't be able to yeah. play, it, but I'm excited. I mean, it's one of those games you're going to want to put hun- uh, like a hundred hours into and just love the world and be in the world as a Navi and and explore. And it's I'm excited. So yeah, that's a great question because. Um, Especially right now, Avatar is, is is a is a hot property, and I'm I'm excited for where it goes next, for sure. Thank you for All asking. Right. Yeah, my pleasure, Dave. Well, uh, that was our random topic segment, pretty well done. I, I thought you know when we covered Mel Brooks, we covered Terminator, we covered uh, Avatar, and uh, various topics in between. I thought it was a fun meander. What, what do you think? Did I, we did I, I'd do that Don't again. I get to ask you one more question? Or do we? Not no, have I think we each had two. We've each had two questions. I, I it went you it went. Oh you right, we started. Said Mel I did right, two I in a row. You're right. You're right. And you're right. and time uh, flies. And yeah. So we've yeah. Time flies when you're meandering, man. Well, that was uh, but fun. always I my meandering with you. With you. Yeah, yeah, it was. Always yeah, we'll have to fun. do that again. That was really fun. For sure. Uh, but we, you know, uh, I, I'm curious to hear what you'll have for us uh, in the next segment, Dave. But uh, we'll uh, we'll see what it is then. Um, so Jeremy, I, I know we just had a wonderful yeah. meandering conversation on multiple topics. Uh, yeah, I wanted fun. to do one of Dave's faves, if I may, for a uh-huh. few minutes. My well, we kind of did a what a Udell swell last Udell episode swell, with or, the Loki talk. <laughs> so that was mine. So tell me what you tell me one of your faves, Dave. That's my fave right now, and I'm late to the game, but I'm loving playing catch up. Is a show on Sci-Fi called Resident Alien. Resident Alien, starring Alan Tudyk. I don't know if you guys have heard of this show at all. I love Alan Tudyk. It's kind of flown under the radar, and I believe the reason why it's flown under the radar is because it's on sci-fi. So it's not on one of those fancy, highfalutin channels or even a streaming service where it gets lots of marketing and and promotional push. I believe it is in or just finished its third season, and I have watched in the last week and a half or two weeks, the f- entirety of the first season on Peacock. It is streaming on Peacock. Yep. So if you subscribe, check it out there. Otherwise, it okay. is kind of frustratingly difficult to find, to watch, which is maybe one knock against it. And like, if you go to sci-fi, even if you log in with a provider, you're only able to watch clips, which is absurd and ridiculous to say the least. Yeah. I've tried logging in so many times thinking that, oh, great, they're showing – Resident Alien, so I could watch it here, only to remember and realize that I'm only getting to see, you know, not the the episodes. So that's frustrating. Mm. The show is, and I'll give you a quick gist of it, is an alien comes down from outer space in a spaceship, highly technologically advanced, with the intention, as we learn only a few episodes in, that his intention is to wipe out all of humanity. His, His role is to bring a device to Earth that will literally kill every human being on the planet. Not all life, Ooh. just humanity, and just that humanity. speaks again to later conversations in this in this in the season where these aliens have visited Earth many many times. They've helped humanity throughout history. He ben- makes mention of the pyramids and of the the Nazca lines and of a couple other things that were aliens. Stonehenge, obviously, you know, probably in, in confirming all the ufologists and conspiracy theorists <laughs> theories out there. Aliens are among us. As and every good been. alien show should. Every yeah. alien show should. And Alan Tudyk is this alien where who, right off the bat, he assumes the role of a visiting doctor in a small town who is just staying in a cabin for a week. He murders the doctor and he assumes his, oh. his, his identity. 
Yeah, it, it's it's okay. So they've been beneficial in the past, but they're he's like, I'm gonna kill you all anyway. So what's one doctor down? Right, basically, right. He, they, I mean, I guess the idea is maybe on along the lines of a Avatar, James Cameron esque, you know, end of humanity as we know it kind of thing. We give up, yeah. right? We uh-huh. d- helped you out all these years. Our intention was to was to make you to build you up into a great society, and you are all right. evil and you're all awful, and all you ever do is kill each other and hurt each other. So humanity shouldn't live anymore. That's the pre- that's huh. the the jumping off point that we we are at. Yeah. That he comes to Earth to destroy humanity. He assumes the identity of a human so he could pass as human for no other reason. He doesn't really need to commingle with the human population. Any more than he has to, but he gets drawn in completely huh. out of his own uh, volition because the identity he assumed was a doctor, and because the small town doctor in this small town, this lakeside town in Colorado, was just murdered or just died. So they need right. a doctor to do the autopsy on the murdered doctor, who is the only doctor who would have been able to do his who do the autopsy. So they drag. Little him do in. they know that they're both doctors have actually been murdered. <laughs> yes, they don't know that yet. Uh, and there's lots yeah. that there's lots that we don't know. So this guy basically sat on a couch for months or weeks, maybe, and watched nothing but Law and Order marathons so he could learn how to speak English. And you see him watching J- Jerry Orbach deliver the same line over and over again, and he copies the mouthing of it until he finally is able to pronounce English. And from there, he learns English. And so throughout the season, it's very funny. He makes reference to Law and Order, where he'll go, dun-dun, like when he's trying to figure out the, the, the scene or whatever he's trying to do. It. It's, okay, it's funny. It's clever. It's very well uh-huh. written. There are uh-huh. a breadth of characters that are all, really all refreshing and not at all what you expect from the archetype that has been initially presented to you in a TV show. It's not really like any show that I've seen. Maybe... If I could compare it to anybody who's ever seen a show like Psych or a show like Monk mm-hmm. or maybe mm-hmm. that the, the USA shows in their heyday where it was characters welcome, right? It's central. Right. It, it all centered on one figure who was the crux of everything and everybody revolved around right. him. That is Alan Tudyk's character in this show and the world that he inhabits is really great. Like he jumps straight in. It's a fish okay, out of water story. House? Is that another one that's like what is that? It? You know, or it's like House, House, House MD. That... On, that was on Fox, I believe. Yeah. But yeah, very similar. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, there's been lots of these. Yeah. Um, where it's a it's a a, 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 a small town yeah. doctor drama. It's a gotcha. alien fish out of water story. It's a comedy. Uh-huh. No, he has this ability to cover his identities uh, using some molecular technology where nobody can see that he's an alien, except there are Uh some people on Earth who have some genetic predisposition to see through this veil. And so there's one little kid who happens to be the son of the mayor of the town who can see him as an alien. And every time he sees him, he runs away screaming. And and Alan Tudyk, who plays Harry, the the name of his character is Harry, um, Uh the Harry... God, I can't believe I can't remember his name. It's it's a weird name. Um, he attempts to kill this kid in a number of different ways. And he literally oh, wow. really wants to murder him. And the kid really starts off so obnoxious that I really was talking to my friend about it. <laughs> you and said, I really hope that he at least kills this kid. He's it's it doesn't pull any punches. It's there's huh. it's not a kid's show by any stretch. No. Okay. There's profanity, there's sexuality, there's violence, mm. there's even some gore. But nothing beyond mm. what you see. Like nothing more than Alien, I think. And and uh, not really a whole lot. I mean, Sarah, Jeremy, I think it would probably okay. say for you, especially since mm-hmm. you've seen the Terminator, Terminator Two. 
Um, I do yeah. have to give a special shout out to my really, really good friend and a person who's been instrumental in the success of this show. His name is Aaron Wiener. And he joined the oh, show. Oh, Aaron. I the, love Aaron. You know Aaron, of course. He joined the show at yeah. the beginning of the second season, and he actually has sole writing credit on the season three premiere, and I believe one other episode. Wow. One other episode of the show. I haven't gotten it to yet, so I'm really excited. And I know awesome. that he brought his own Good sensibility to the show when he when he joined. And I, and I was telling him the other day, he came over to watch football. I was telling him the other day how much I'm enjoying the show, how funny it is, and how well-written I think yeah. it is. And he was like, oh, well, that's all before me. You'll, you'll see a lot of my humor in in the season <laughs> since when, since I joined. And I'm like, okay, so maybe that means I'll probably start liking it less. Kind of just, you know, getting <laughs> it. Well, you should. Because that's what you should. You can't let – I love Aaron. You can't let him get too big ahead. Come yeah, on. He's, I mean, he's uh, not really you know, We funny, love you, buddy. And so, and so you kind of have to just say, you know, maybe the framework was there and all you did was just, you know, jump in. But give him full credit. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited to watch his episode. And, I'm, and I'd like yeah. to talk about it on its own uh, when I do finally get there, but I'm still only, I think I'm in the second episode of season two. But anyway, it's, it's really a fun, entertaining show where you really want to see where it goes because it, it, each episode is kind of standalone, but it's definitely, definitely one big story. And it's really a lot of fun. It takes a lot of different elements from a lot of different shows that you're familiar with. It throws a lot of stuff out the window and it really turns a lot of tropes on their head. And I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it, and that's my Dave's fave for this week. Nice. All right, so check out Resident Alien uh, on Peacock right now. I, you know what, Dave? We have to hope that maybe Netflix will eventually buy. You look what happened with Suits, right? Speaking of USA shows, uh, Suits gets bought by wasn't it USA? It wasn't TNT. I don't. I think it was uh, USA that had Suits. That was a USA show, and yeah. it was you know it was a pretty good show, pretty popular when it was on, but it was on cable, and not everyone really cared about it. All of a sudden, Suits is a thing again because Netflix bought it, bought the entire run, and people are just streaming the heck out of it because oh here's a good show that was pretty fun and it be and it, it be entered the national consciousness so we have to hope for resident alien to either you know netflix or one of the bigger streamers maybe because uh, peacock or the, for peacock maybe just to become more widely accessible because well uh, that's, that's i would say barring bad, alan tudyk marrying british royalty it's probably not as <laughs> much of a likelihood that resident alien will achieve that <laughs> pop success that the highly overrated show Suits received. How um, dare you? I'm of course How mentioning, of course referring to uh, her lady mistress Meghan Markle, who uh, had the did us all the great honor in show in appearing on a Suits on a USA show years ago before she married a British prince and didn't need such petty things as acting in TV shows anymore. Uh, I, I think that most of the re- of, of success behind Suits in the second run on Netflix is that, and because of the train wreck and or train derailment or more metaphors for trains of thought that we have for the British royal family and Meghan and Harry's defection from them. That probably lends itself more to it. Although I do have a couple friends, I, I will admit, who have watched it since, not in any way mentioning her, saying what a great show it is. And I remember watching it. It was at the tail end of my real love affair with USA, was, was Suits, was the last show, I believe, that really was part of that effect, and that was Royal yeah. Pains, Psych, Monk. Um, yeah. Burn Notice, loved those shows, all of them, and watched all yeah. of them through to the end. Yeah. And it, it kind of pe- meandered for me. It petered out a bit for me, so I lost interest. But um, I if, think if it's you a love very it, streamable the, show. I, th- 
I, guess. I think that's part of. I mean, because there because there were continuing through lines through the show, and you get to more quickly find out, you know, the the main plots of things like, okay, will anyone figure out that the one of the main characters is actually not an attorney, and how quickly, and how will they that affect them, as opposed to the very slow burn of watching it on a week to week and the the long breaks between you know, half seasons that it kind of had because that's how it was on cables. You'd get these six-month runs and, and it was off a normal schedule. So I do think it's a better streaming show. I like Suits. I don't, you know, I'm not going to tell you it's like some sort of work of art, but uh, it's amazing we've gotten on to Suits here, but I actually, uh, I just want to come back again. I, I, I meant that as a compliment because it sounds like this Resident Alien is a show that people should be checking out. And wherever it is, I want to just fi finalize by saying, uh, please go check that out because, uh, you know, I'm going to go check it out. And uh, and if Dave likes it, uh, I'm sure it's pretty good. Dave's faves generally are pretty good. It is. Dave, one of our regular listeners, Greg in Tampa, is obsessed with one piece of Star Wars arcana that most people have forgotten about, never knew existed, and largely revile even if they're aware of it, and that is the Star Wars Holiday Special. Boom. And lo and behold, there's a documentary coming out about it, and we got a link about this to an article from Rolling Stone from our listener, Greg, and he said, I expect a poodoo cast on this, on this documentary coming out. What are your thoughts on... The holiday special in general, this documentary, and us even bothering with it in the Poodoo cast. I think it's worth considering because it's probably the one piece of original Star Wars production from the George Lucas era that isn't considered canon in the current iteration of Star Wars, unless I'm mistaken. Right. It's terrible in every way. <laughs> it's It's really... An uncomfortable, <laughs> ill-conceived, ill-executed piece of trash <laughs> that was only there to capitalize monetarily on yeah. the theatrical success of the, of the movie Star Wars. It came out in 1978, so that means it came out after A New Hope, before Empire Strikes right. Back, and it was on TV. So all the... 790 million people who went and saw Star Wars in theaters were obviously super excited when something Star Wars was going to be on TV. They're like, well, I think yeah, there oh might yeah. be a sequel coming out, but oh my God, there's a holiday special? I can't wait to check this out. Yeah, Everything yeah. about it is forgettable from beginning to end. Everybody involved in it <laughs> knows that it's garbage and hated it. Yep. I, I'm actually yep. looking on, on something. I just did a search, and like a, a key takeaway from the article is the special is widely regarded is one of the worst pieces of television ever produced. And while it hasn't seen the light of day since it aired, a new documentary is going to give audiences a taste of what went in into the disastrous variety show. It never aired in its entirety on television after its original air on right. uh, in 1978 holiday season. That's how horribly regarded it is that, yep. so, that 46 years after its release... It's still remembered for being as awful as it is. Em embarrassing. Uh, there's so many words that come to mind. Again, I've seen a lot of it. I don't know that I've seen all of it. But I do know in what might be one of the only in any way redeemable pieces of this show is 
an animated sequence that introduces the world to none other than Boba Fett. Boba Fett's oh. first appearance was in the oh. Star Wars Holiday Special. Wow. And it was Han and Chewie are flying around in their Millennium Falcon looking super miserably animated with super bad voice. Actually, is it <laughs> did maybe even Harrison Ford record his voice, I believe. I believe it was oh. his voice. I do know that it was Jeremy Bullock who voiced Boba Fett in that appearance. I believe their ship gets stuck in a swamp and they're in some kind of swamp planet and they're being stalked by this bounty hunter because obviously Jabba the Hutt is already after them. We know that. Right. Uh, right. Named Boba Fett, who in the special editions was introduced in the sequence in the hangar, Docker, uh, yeah. Docking Bay 94, uh, when Jabba comes to visit Han. We see Boba mm-hmm. Fett there. But Boba Han Fett, Mabuki. for you discerning viewers, yeah. Boba Fett was not mm-hmm. in that original scene no. that, that was filmed for New Hope that wasn't included until the special edition because they didn't have a special effect for Jabba. He was added right. in to that deleted scene later as a kind of yep. a wink to the audience. Look, here's Boba Fett. He's been here the whole time. He was not introduced in <laughs> New Hope. He was introduced in the Star Wars holiday special. And that is the one and only saving grace, if there even is. It, even then, forget it. It's still not worth saving of the holiday special. But yes, <laughs> this is going to be a very fun documentary. I think it's probably going to be very tongue-in-cheek and funny, I would assume. They're yeah, going to try to make fun of hope. us as much as possible. I hope they're not going to try to hold it in any reverence or try to make us reevaluate <laughs> it as being some masterful piece of cinema or TV experience, some some shared communal experience that we all had in 1978 that we'll, that we'll never be able to, to lose. But uh, I can't wait to watch it. We'll definitely talk about it when it comes out. Right, Jerem? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to watch it. I mean, that again, anything Star Wars and this, this sounds fascinating. I, I, I want to know more about this thing because the only things I've ever heard about it are basically what you just said, that it was garbage, uh, that nobody should ever watch it anyway, that, but yet it exists. And a lot of the main players from Star Wars were affiliated with it and did things for it. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, so, Greg... You've hit us and hit us and hit us, and, and look at that. Somebody agreed with you, did a whole documentary about it, and because they did, maybe you'll actually get a full podcast by us, at least addressing the documentary about the holiday special. With that, Dave, this I've enjoyed talking sort of holiday-style like movie topics with you, man. This was, uh, this was really fun. I, all right, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Eating turkey. What are you doing? Uh, I think turkey, um, maybe also some side items that mm-hmm. often come with turkey and others that don't. Now, let me ask you this real last question. Do you put the stuffing on the inside of the turkey or on the outside of the turkey? Oh, definitely the outside of the turkey. Don't ruin the turkey. People don't stuff inside of stuffing it. anymore, do they? I know. They? It like, shouldn't be called, called stuffing that anymore. anymore. Yeah. It, it, it should just be called, uh, you know, casserole, like, you know, onion gravy casserole dish. And then they something. should just call know. it like a turkey cavern because it's just got this huge gaping <laughs> maw in the middle of it <laughs> that needs something to be put in there. And I think it should be stuffing. I think we need to bring back the put stuffing in turkey movement to Thanksgiving. Well, you can still put things inside the turkey, Dave. You can put like... Well, like, I only do that when people like, aren't watching. <laughs> that has to be the end (laughs) no seriously that was uh that was uh my thoughts on on turkey is that you can stuff it full of garlic and lemon and whatever else to give the turkey flavor um but don't some people still like like do a beer can inside of it dave isn't that a thing yeah dumb people turkey 
Yeah. Have you ever uh, deep fried a turkey? I have never deep fried a turkey. I hear good things. Have you ever smoked a turkey? I have never actively cooked a turkey that was not basically a pre-made turkey or one that someone else had largely prepped and I stuck in the oven, Dave. We had uh, been gifted, I don't even know how we came about it, a, a smoker a bunch of years back that sat in my garage unused until I finally got got it together to say, I'm going to use it this year for Thanksgiving. We're going to smoke a turkey, and it's going to be amazing. I sat outside with this miserably working, barely contraption of smoker for like eight hours, standing next to the turkey the whole time, making sure it had enough water, that the thing didn't go out, that it kept smoking, and then it ended up being like half cooked. And the, the turkey that was cooked, was smoked, was good. But we wasted a whole lot of turkey, and it was kind of unfortunate. It was a fun experiment. Uh, I threw away the smoker thereafter and have not looked back. <laughs> but I'm very excited for Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. I love the holiday. I love the being together with family and eating lots of good food and watching football and get to watch my Dolphins on Black Friday for the first ever Black Friday yeah. NFL game, which no one asked for, but yeah. apparently everybody wants. So there you have it. Can't wait. Yep. Go Fins. And uh, yeah, may everyone have a, a great Thanksgiving or already have had one by the time this airs. And uh, you know, look forward to talking to you more in the holiday season. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to the Poodoo Cast with Jeremy Udell and David Vizana. Tune in regularly for more meandering conversations about Star Wars and other topics. Like us, subscribe, interact with us directly, thepoodoocast at gmail.com. Follow us back here soon because we made a blazing poodoo, a torch to light the 